0: Welcome to this episode of Misty 101 Podcast. We hope that you will enjoy this episode. Sudden Toad Invasion Threatens Humans and Pets Dozens of volunteers have been collecting highly toxic cane toads in the town of Keotun in Taiwan in an attempt to contain their spread, while scientists remain puzzled by how these large amphibians found their way into the area. We hope to minimize the impact brought by the invasive species by collecting them to protect our own local species a volunteer from the Taiwan Amphibian Conservation Society, Guavatsai, told NBC News. Originating from South and Central America, cane toads, whose poison can kill a human if it gets into the eyes or mouth, have long been an issue for Australia and the Philippines. However, They were never recorded in Taiwan until recently, when a local resident took pictures of toads enjoying themselves in a community garden. The photo quickly went viral on social media and prompted the volunteers and researchers to take immediate steps. A speedy and massive search operation is crucial when cane toads are first discovered. An amphibian scientist at the Endemic Species Research Institute, Lin Chunfu told AFP and Euronews, adding that cane toads do not have any natural enemies in Taiwan. When the volunteers arrived at the vegetable garden, where the first photo was taken, they were shocked to discover 27 amphibians whose toxin, as Australian experience shows, might be especially dangerous to dogs and cats, which can lick them. I was shocked and worried when they, the volunteers, found more than 20. This is not going to be an easy thing to tackle. We began to notify and mobilize everyone to act an expert at National Donghua University, Yang Yiju, said. She added that the presence of younger toads points to the fact that the species is breeding. During the past few days, the search perimeter was constantly expanding with dozens of toads found. As no sightings in other areas of Taiwan have been reported, the scientists are cautiously optimistic about containing the spread. In the meantime, they are trying to understand the cause of the issue. One theory is that locals started breeding toads, which, despite their toxicity, symbolize wealth and good luck in Chinese culture and can be sold for up to $144 with some amphibians later escaping or being abandoned by their owners. Boris Johnson in real danger, PM issued savage warning as Tories defect to rival party. A win in Bexley and Sidcup cooled the nerves of the Conservatives in what was a convincing victory for the party. With a by-election being held in North Shropshire, to replace the departing Owen Paterson there is now a real sense of worry that an upset could be on the cards. Fresh news of Anthony Allen, a former Tory councillor in North Shropshire defecting to the Reclaim party in North Shropshire, has further heightened worry that a defeat is increasingly more likely. Speaking about his decision to leave, Mr Allen said he believed the Conservatives simply aren't conservative anymore. He added the party have gone soft on illegal immigration, they've lost control of taxation and are obsessed with crippling green taxes nobody wants. Martin Daubney, former Brexit party MEP, and Lawrence Fox, are both set to hit the campaign trail soon. However, there seems to be a sense of worry that this seat is not as comfortable as imagined. In the previous election. A majority of 22,000 showed how solid a seat it was at the time. Yet with the deployment of Boris Johnson and Michael Gove to campaign for the seat, a real sense of worry seems to be in the air. But Lord Norman Tebbit, former MP and member of the Conservative Party, has warned of the real danger the Prime Minister now faces. Writing for The Telegraph, he said. The minds of the staff at Conservative headquarters will now have turned to the impending by-election in North Shropshire, brought about by the resignation of Owen Paterson. Despite Paterson's majority of almost 23,000 it will not be an easy election for the Tories to win, for there are too many things going awry for the government. The arrival of the new, seemingly highly infectious variant of Covid cannot be blamed on Johnson but there is the question of whether the measures he has taken on travel, masks and meetings will have some impact on family plans for Christmas. Moreover, the opposition parties will project Patterson's conduct into a charge of sleaze against Johnson himself and the government from top to bottom. Ryder Cup golfer groped stewardess and urinated on seats after partying in first class. Thorpe, no leeson the Ryder Cup-winning Danish golfer, sexually assaulted a woman in a British Airways flight after drinking champagne and vodka and taking sleeping pills, a court has heard. The 31-year-old was on his way home from a tournament in Memphis, Tennessee, and was traveling with English golf stars Ian Poulter and Justin Rose, when he allegedly grabbed a woman's breast, swore, pushed a member of the cabin crew and urinated on a first-class seat. Prior to the incident, witnesses claimed they saw a small group of passengers gathered around Mr O'Leason's seat with a handful of brightly colored pills. One member of the crew claimed she heard someone in the group say, oh, I'll have some of those while another B.A. Stiodes said it appeared some passengers were trying to have a party. John Haggis a fellow traveller. Reported hearing the sound of tablet foil being broken and Mr. Poulter saying he had given one to Mr. Oleson earlier, the court heard. The Danish sportsman, who now lives in London, was arrested when the aircraft landed at Heathrow, but said he had no memory of his behavior while on board. His barrister, Trevor Burke QC, suggested Mr. Oleson's bizarre behavior was due to prescription medication he had taken. Which could have the side effect of causing sleepwalking and amnesia. In a statement read out in court, Sarah White, a BA cabin crew member, said she had served the golfer, who was traveling first class, with a glass of champagne before takeoff, followed by a vodka and cranberry juice. She said she had also noticed him drinking champagne from another passenger's glass. Ms. White said at one point she had noticed Mr. O'Leason struggling to get out of the aircraft lavatory by pushing at a pool door, but when she tried to help him he pushed her and said, it's all about you isn't it, just go away. She said, during the flight, Mr. O'Leason assaulted me and failed to listen to my instructions. Through my 27 years of service, I have never come across such bad behaviour on board a flight. Graham G, a crew member, then tried to intervene to get Oleson back to his seat, but he grabbed his hand and began to kiss it, the jury was told. A woman, who cannot be identified, also gave a statement in which she claimed Oleson had grabbed her hand and started to kiss it. She said, he would not let go and then nuzzled his face into the nape of my neck. I felt he clearly didn't know what he was doing. He had his right hand around my back. With his left hand, he then grabbed my breast and moved his hand over my right breast. I felt shocked, he had overstepped the mark. The court heard that Mr. Poulter, also a member of Europe's Ryder Cup team, felt his fellow golfer was in a good mood and very jovial when he boarded the flight. He said he had taken some sleeping tablets but had not given any to Mr. Oleason. I was unaware of what happened. I assisted with bringing him back to his seat. He looked a little bit worse for wear and I just assumed he had too much to drink he explained. At one point during the flight. Mr. Rose, a former World No One golfer and winner of the Olympic title in 2016, was allegedly seen by Cabin Crew opening his overhead locker and removing a small medicine bottle before going to speak to Mr. O'Leason. He then approached a member of the crew and said, He hasn't taken anything because I found this tablet in the area where he was sitting. The court heard. Mr. Burke, defending, told jurors they would have to decide what prompted his bizarre behaviour. He said they should consider an alternative explanation to the prosecution case that he drank too much liquor and was drunk. He explained that Mr O'Leason had taken melatonin and Zolpidum sleeping tablets and with the combination of alcohol he would have had no control or memory over his actions. Zolpidum, better known under the brand name Ambien is a common prescription medication used to treat short-term sleeping problems, jurors heard. The QC told jurors Olesen's partner, Lauren Zaffer, an accountant at PricewaterhouseCoopers, had bought Ambien tablets online to treat her insomnia. The defense case is that he took the prescription-only medication along with melatonin, commonly used to manage jet lag. The court heard that none of the substances Oleson may have consumed were on the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, list. Mr Oleson denies sexual assault, assault by beating and being drunk on an aircraft on 29 July 2019. The trial at central London's Aldersgate House Nightingale Court continues. Russia and India strike alarming partnership in defiant message to Biden, great power. A 10-year defence technical cooperation agreement and a one-year oil contract were among the deals signed as Mr Putin met Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for talks in New Delhi. The Russian president headed to the Indian capital in what was only his second trip abroad since the pandemic first began having skipped the G20 and COP26 summits this year. India also confirmed that Russia began deliveries of its long-range S-400 ground-to-air missile defence system this month, raising threats of US sanctions. Mr Putin snubbed the US when he hailed India as a great power as the pair bolstered ties, despite Washington's attempt to strengthen its relationship with New Delhi. The US had set up the Quad Security Pact with India, Japan, and Australia, raising concerns in both Beijing and Moscow. But now it appears that New Delhi is aligning itself more closely with Moscow. Mr Putin said at the meeting, we perceive India as a great power, a friendly nation and a time-tested friend. Russia has been a key supplier of arms to India for a long period and the new S-400 missile system is one of its most high-profile current contracts. Indian Foreign Secretary Harsh Vardhan Shringla said, following the summit, supplies have begun this month and will continue. The deal is worth over £3.8 billion and was first signed in 2018. But the US has warned of sanctions under the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, CASA aimed at reigning in Russia. The State Department said last week that no decisions had been made on any waivers for India. Kremlin spokesman Dmitri Peskov told reporters on Monday, Our Indian friends clearly explained that they are a sovereign country and that they will decide whose weapons to buy and who will be India's partner. Nandan Anakrishnan from the New Delhi-based Observer Research Foundation think tank said Mr Putin's visit to India was hugely symbolic. He said, there has been a lot of speculation about the nature of the India-Russia relationship and whether it is fraying because of Russia's closeness with China and India's with the US, but this visit puts all that to rest. The move comes as India looks to diversify its weapons supply and ramp up domestic production. It has now launched a joint venture with Russia to manufacture AK-203 assault rifles. Kalashnikov Concern said Monday that it had agreed on a contract to supply more than 600,000 AK-203 assault rifles manufactured in India for the Indian Defence Ministry. As well as weapons. Russia's state-owned energy firm Rosneft also confirmed it will supply nearly 2 m tons of crude oil to Indian Oil Co. IOC, next year. And the two countries struck up 28 investment pacts signed which include deals in the petrochemical, gas and fertiliser sectors. Under the Rosneft-IOC deal, the Russian energy firm will supply oil from the Black Sea port of Novorossiysk to the Indian firm in 2022. The two companies had signed a similar deal in February 2020. Strengthening partnerships in the petrochemical sector were also discussed at the 21st India-Russia summit. India's Ministry of External Affairs said, both sides appreciating the strength of the Indian petrochemical market, agreed to expand collaboration through Russian participation by way of investment, technological and other ways of collaboration in Indian petrochemical sector. YouTube reveals staggering amount of incorrect copyright claims. In a a first-of-a-kind report. YouTube revealed that in just the first half of 2021 the site received over 729 million copyright claims, of which over 3.6 million were disputed as being incorrect. Copyright claims, which have long been the bane of many a YouTuber's existence, are oftentimes not only overly aggressive, but sometimes simply incorrect and exploitative. Creators have long complained about the implementation of YouTube's copyright system, which can lead to videos being completely taken down, audio muted, or ad revenues going to the claimant before a creator could even dispute the claim. According to YouTube's report, over 2.2 million copyright claim disputes in the first half of 2021 were settled in favor of the content creators representing over 60% of disputed claims. The Copyright Transparency Report does not, however, specify what losses the creators incurred while challenging these claims. The report is the first of its kind, and YouTube promises to release it biannually going forward. The main issue people have with the system which the report itself admits isn't perfect is that there is little to no means to stop companies from filing false copyright claims, so the problem has persisted for many years on the platform and many content creators have started relying on other means of monetizing their content, such as Patron and other similar subscription platforms. Creators have been demanding a substantial change to the system for years now, and in 2019 YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki stated that the company was exploring improvements but, so far, it seems there have not been many significant changes, aside from the automated content ID system, which, though mostly accurate, still makes false judgments, prompting creators to go through an oftentimes lengthy appeal process. Falsely arrested Khashoggi killer released in France media. A Saudi national arrested in France on suspicion of being involved in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi is reportedly set to be released. French officials confirmed him to be a different person, local media reported. The man, identified as Khalid al atabi 33, one of the Saudi Royal Guards wanted by Turkey for being involved in the 2018 murder, just happens to share the killer's name, Le Figaro reported. The Paris Public Prosecutor's Office confirmed the man's true identity, the newspaper reported, citing sources. He is expected to be freed on Wednesday or early Friday, it said. According to earlier media reports, French police arrested Alatabi at Charles de Gaulle Airport near Paris on Tuesday morning. He was said to be boarding a plane to Riyadh. His name was flagged due to being on an Interpol wanted list, under a Turkey-issued warrant. Kashogai, a Saudi dissident and columnist for The Washington Post, was assassinated at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The hit is widely believed to have been ordered by Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. The Saudi government denied it and blamed a group of rogue agents. Riyadh said they had been duly prosecuted and punished for their crime. After reports of the arrest in France broke, Saudi Arabia said it was a case of mistaken identity. UK broadcasters ditch acronym for minorities as not nuanced enough. Four major British broadcasters have agreed to avoid using the acronym BAME, which means Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic, following the recent recommendation to use more nuanced terms for specific ethnic groups. The BBC, ITV, Channel 4. And Channel 5 announced on Tuesday that they will now avoid using the term BAME in their news content and corporate communications. The move towards specificity, and away from a catch all term, paves the way for greater acknowledgement of the unique experience of people from different ethnic backgrounds and offers insight into the issues facing specific groups, reads the broadcaster's rare joint press statement. The report conducted by Sir Lenny Henry Center for Media Diversity, LHC, says that intensifying use of the collective term BAME in 2020 coincided with Black Lives Matter movement and COVID pandemic, which exposed ethnically marked health and other inequalities. Interestingly, Both these developments have required the need for a more nuanced and culturally astute understanding of specific ethnic demographic groups, reads the report. It also notes that the catch-all term now has specific negative connotations and therefore should be used with particular care. The advice for the broadcasters was to choose more specific ethnicity describing definitions and to limit the use of the acronym by reported speech. In those cases where a wider term is needed, they advised using black, Asian and minority ethnic. The authors of the review welcomed the announcement by the four broadcast outlets, saying that they are very happy that British broadcasters are taking the issue of racial language seriously. U.S. Embassy rejects claims of Afghan-style evacuation from Ukraine. American diplomats in Kiev have rejected claims in Western media that Washington is reviewing how to ensure government personnel and citizens can be kept out of harm's way in case of conflict with Russia. On Tuesday, the U.S. Embassy in Kiev dismissed rumors that plans were being drawn up to rescue American nationals if a war broke out, writing on Twitter that contrary to news reports, the U.S government, is not currently considering evacuations of personnel or American citizens from Ukraine. We conduct normal contingency planning, as we always do, in the event the security situation severely deteriorates, the diplomatic service said. The comments come after CNN claimed that President Joe Biden's administration is exploring contingency plans for potentially pulling out its citizens in Ukraine if Russian troops were to invade the country. According to the outlet's sources, Washington's officials currently do not see a need for evacuation missions as the Eastern European nation's international airports and land borders remain open. However, discussions were reportedly underway for if the situation takes a turn for the worst. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby has also rejected the claims. The Department of Defense is a planning organization and must be ready for any manner of contingencies around the world. But there is no demand signal for civilian evacuations in Ukraine and it would be wrong to conclude that there is an active effort in the Pentagon to prepare for them," he said in a statement to the outlet. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova, however, stepped out to denounce the publication, writing on her Telegram channel that the claims amounted to fake garbage and passion over Ukraine is gaining momentum, elevating morbid fantasies about Russian aggression. Moscow has repeatedly denied accusations in recent weeks from Western officials and outlets that Russia is beefing up its military at its shared frontier with Ukraine. Kremlin press secretary Dmitry Peskov blasted recent reports as groundless. In early November, a report from US news site Politico, which alleged Russian troops were being deployed in increasing numbers near the Ukrainian border, came under fire from officials. Satellite imagery published alongside the article purported to depict hardware stacking up near the city of Yalnya, which is actually located hundreds of kilometers from Ukraine and closer to Belarus. U.S. sells Iranian crude seized on the high seas. The U.S. government has sold Iranian petroleum products confiscated by the Navy in the waters of the Arabian Sea for $26.7 million the Department of Justice said in a statement released on Tuesday. The volume of crude sold reportedly amounted to about 1.1 million barrels. The returns would reportedly be sent to the U.S. victims of state-sponsored terrorism fund. The U.S. government sold the seized petroleum products pursuant to a court order. The net proceeds of that sale. $26,681,397.67 before interest, may be directed, in whole or in part, to the U.S. victims of state-sponsored terrorism fund now that the case has concluded the Justice Department said. The statement doesn't specify when the maritime forfeiture operations were conducted but claims that the petroleum products were seized from four foreign flagged tankers in or around the Arabian Sea while en route to Venezuela. It is also not clear if the seizure of Iranian crude was legal under international and US laws. A Justice Department website says America has authority under international law to enter into agreements to stop. Search and detain foreign vessels on the high seas that are suspected of trafficking in illicit drugs. The United States may limit its jurisdiction over a foreign flag vessel seized on the high seas, and the vessel may be returned to the flag state at its request without compliance with domestic forfeiture law. Where the United States is authorized under international law to exercise its police powers to detain ships on behalf of their flag state, Such detention does not constitute a taking under the Fifth Amendment. However, where a ship is seized concurrently on behalf of the United States for violation of U.S. customs laws, a claimant is entitled to a prompt adjudication of his rights in the seized property. I've rescued starving babies from junky parents. Here's how to end our drugs nightmare. Kevin Hurley is a former senior police officer and reservist army officer. He has completed two tours in Iraq and two in Afghanistan working on security sector reform. He now specializes in advising on policing and security development in fractured nations. As a long-serving police officer in London, I was on the front line of our battle against the criminal activities of ruthless drug gangs. It's why I welcome the new government move to take them on. There's been a lot said about drugs by politicians in Britain this week. The Speaker of the House of Commons has expressed concerns about traces of them being found in parliamentary buildings, while Kit Malthouse, the policing minister, has launched a new initiative to take on criminal drug dealers. After 30 years in the police in London there's nothing here that's unusual. With thousands of people visiting parliament every day, I'd have thought it likely that people who use drugs visit the place. We shouldn't be surprised if some of them even take their drugs there and leave traces behind. After all, the security processes at parliament are designed to stop terrorists, not people with drugs. Whilst this may make for shocking headlines, The thought that some visitors, young staff members or even reckless MPs might have smoked cannabis or snorted some cocaine is hardly earth-shattering. We've often seen MPs in the parliamentary chamber the worse for wear from alcohol or from other drugs. They've even assaulted or sexually abused each other in the parliamentary estate when inebriated. Scratch any big business, army unit, fire station. A&D department or police force, and you will find similar examples there. As humans, it's what some of us do. It's one of the things that kept me busy in my job as a copper, trying to stop or manage such behavior. Because in today's world this is what passes for normal behavior. Of course, this doesn't make using recreational drugs a good thing far from it but it is a rite of passage for many young people. We should discourage and try to stop it, but we will not succeed. Young people believe they know best and always have. But behind this supply of these recreational substances are networks of unscrupulous drug dealers making handsome profits from it. They are part of a distribution system that drives some of the teenage murders on our streets and supplies the Class A drugs for the 300,000 or so addicts in the UK, who commit more than half of all offences of burglary, robbery and car crime. All committed to raise funds to feed their habits, and to keep themselves from being punished by their rapacious suppliers. These dealers use brutal enforcement beatings and kidnappings on those in their debt their predations drive the approximately one quarter of a percent of our population who break into our homes and cars and rob us on our streets. These junkies have another insidious impact on our society. They end up ill with things like septicemia and HIV by injecting drugs into their bodies and become a big burden on the NHS. Others who abuse strong forms of cannabis end up with severe forms of psychotic behavior that manifests itself in domestic violence, child abuse and violent, often unprovoked, attacks on the street. This all costs a lot of public money and time to manage. And results in untold pain and sadness. These criminal dealers are also behind the misery and abuse that causes so many vulnerable young children to suffer awful and neglected lives. I suspect when we look into the circumstances leading to the dreadful and cruel murder of six-year-old Arthur Labanjo Hughes, we will see the part that drugs played in setting up the conditions for this child to be killed by his father and stepmother. I’ve seen it many times before. I’ve taken starving. Filthy babies from their stinking urine soaked cots while their parents lay slumped on the floor of their council flat in a drug induced stupor. Completely oblivious to the overflowing and fly blown rubbish thrown in every corner of their flats or the nauseating smell of drying dog feces on the sticky carpets and stained sofas. That is why I say we should get over the latest statement by the speaker and concentrate on what the policing minister is saying. I know Kit Malthouse from his days when he was both Deputy Mayor for Policing and Member of the London Assembly for West London. At the time, I was the Borough Commander for Hammersmith and Fulham and later Area Commander for West London. I used to meet with Kit regularly to discuss crime matters. He always asked me to explain why troubled and disadvantaged areas on my patch, such as the White City Estate and Shepherd's Bush, had the best crime reduction of all the 32 boroughs in London. I could have said it was my leadership, but that would have been wrong. I had a truly visionary number two, and I gave him his head to use ham-picked specialist plainclothes squads to go after low-level drug dealers who supplied the burglars, robbers and car criminals. The uniform patrol and neighborhood officers supported this and were equally focused. I backed my deputy's strategy in the face of demands from the Met's hierarchy to follow their latest plans to disband our drug squads and those concentrating on robbery, burglary and car crime. I refused, I knew what we did worked. Kit loved what we were doing, backed me, and asked why the rest of the Met didn't copy it. I suggested he ask my bosses at Scotland Yard. He did, and I was called up and accused of spying for the deputy mayor, who keeps telling us to copy what you do at Hammersmith and Fulham. It was made very clear that what I did was not going down well with some of the top brass. Not surprisingly, promotion didn't follow for me. But it did for the senior officer who had been embarrassed by her lack of competence and the questions asked of her by Malthouse. She ended up moving to a very senior post up north. Such is the way the world turns. But what is now happening is even more gratifying than what we were able to achieve in a small part of London. Kit Malt House is now in a position to take what we learned there and make a difference across the whole country. Firstly, he is putting pressure on police chiefs to focus on drug dealing. That will be hard for some because many have no idea of how you do that, and have cut the resources and skills needed to achieve it. I am afraid this is modern policing, strategic planning and direction is sacrificed for political expediency. Whether it is putting resources into diversity or reacting to whatever is the latest and inevitably politically opportunist soundbite. Secondly, as part of his strategy to reduce the numbers of those 300,000 junkies who steal so much from us, Kit Malthouse is reinvigorating a health-focused approach to reducing drug dependency with a host of new and previously successful measures. Of course, much expertise has been lost because of austerity and the cuts. Most notably, proactive policing skills against gangs drug dealers and those who can teach those techniques as well as specialist drugs and rehabilitation workers within the health arena the money currently allocated is nowhere near enough but it is a start and a strong steer from the government it's one of the few initiatives that I have seen in recent years in regard to tackling crime that is on the money and not just political knee-jerking after all drugs have been a problem for 60 years. Malthouse has a long history of political oversight of the police. From what I see, he has learned from that, and continues to listen to those he judges are competent. If he can get police chiefs to grasp the fact that proactively targeting the drug dealers will suppress burglaries and robbery, and steer them away from making sound bites on recreational drug use and to do something tangible and effective against the drug gangs, he will make a real difference. Going after the dealers will not stop the problem overnight or entirely but it will help rob some of the 300,000 junkies of their reason to steal from us and that's got to be a good thing. Finally, we seem to have a politician who knows what he is doing in his post. It's long overdue. We thank you for your support, we hope that you have enjoyed today's podcast and we are looking forward to your company in our next episode of Misty 101 Podcast.